thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to begin Sefer Yerimia in earnest. Just to let you know uh, where we've been holding up to this point. Uh, up to this point, we've basically been doing introductions to Sefer Yerimia. And the reason that giving the historical background to the Sefer is so important and something that we're going to return to tonight is that Sefer Yerimia is not a book that lends itself to an easy chronology or an easy reading. Once you open up the book, for example, roughly one breakdown I saw said roughly the first 31 chapters or so uh, have no discernible chronological order and are rather a collection of divrei tochacha and divrei moser, words of uh, reproving the Jewish people and of warning of impending doom and destruction and, um, and musings of Yirmiyahu himself as well. Um, and then the Sefer does transition to tell of certain historical events, but it really doesn't uh, lend itself to an easy chronological reading if you were to just open up the Sefer and read it straight through, which is why I thought it was crucial that when we were beginning our learning of Sefer Yermia, that it was important to at least outline the general historical background. And it's so important to understand the historical background because the way I saw it, I was re- uh, reading a shir from Rabbi, Rabbi David Sabato, uh, who I could only imagine is uh, related uh, to Rav Chaim Sabato. He is a Ram in Yeshivat Birkat Moshe Ma'alei Adumim. And he points out that so much of what's going on in this Sefer, even though we've discussed it in the Book of Kings and Sefer Melachim, and we've seen these events given uh, sort of a large bird's eye view, the 20,000 foot view of these events, Yermia expands upon them and gives us a picture on the ground of the people and the prophet on the ground as they're experiencing these events. And but by these events, I mean the end of Sefer Melachim, chapters 21 to 25 of Melachim Bet, that uh, tells us about the, the, the fall and the eventual demise of uh, Malchut Beit David, at least for our time in history. And understanding that there are, and it's worth reviewing this, understanding that there are three main powers in the world that are jockeying for rule of the ancient Near East. You have Mitzrayim in the south, led by Paro You have Bavel, which is led by Nebuchadnezzar. And you have Ashur, Assyria, which was previously led by Sancheireb and then by his successors, Ashur Bar Penal. And we find that all of these three powers are jockeying for domination of the ancient Near East. And little tiny Yehuda, Malchus based David, the southern kingdom of the Jewish people is caught at the crossroads, as it were, between all these three people, between all these three kingdoms. And whoever dominates the Middle East at the time is going to need to dominate Malchut Yehuda, Eretz bin Yamin. It's going to have to dominate that because it lies at the crossroads. We saw this with the death of, of uh, Melech Yoshiahu, that he went to really place himself in the center. Imagine one man, one king, placing himself at the center at the collision point between Ashur and Mitzrayim, and eventually it leads to his demise and his death. But we see this constantly, uh, and this is the, the reason for the changing allegiances that we talked about by Yehoiakim, by Yehoiachin, by Tzidkiyahu HaMelech, which eventually lead to the destruction of the temple and the exiles beforehand that we are going to unfortunately be commemorating this week on, uh, on Tisha B'Av. And, um, and that's why I believe that it was important to give all these divrei hakdam in order to understand the prophecies better. And hopefully now that we look at the prophecies, select prophecies of Yermia uh, in, uh, in earnest, 
we'll be able to understand exactly what the context those prophecies were given were. So without any further ado, I'm going to uh, present our source sheet over here. And uh, we'll begin the book of Jeremiah, Sefer Yermia. Let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger for everybody so that it'll be uh, easier to read. I'm going to, that should be all right. Excellent. So the book of Jeremiah, Sefer Yermia. So we have, uh, the, what we're going to look at today is the beginning, the initiation of Yermia, uh, really the most pivotal moment in his life as God calls to him and tells him what the rest of his life is going to look like what his uh, prophecies are going to entail and what he's going to be focused on. But, uh, you know, I, I shared a little bit prematurely because I want to tell us a little bit. One last introductory note I spoke about the Shabbos is if you, if you look at Chazal, if you look at Baba Basra, Daf Yudalit Yud, Bet, it tells us about the order of the Jewish canon, the order of the Chavdalit Sifrei Tanakh. And in the, in the opinion of Chazal, the order of the canon is not the way that it appears in our current day uh, Sifrei Tanakh and the way, that we, the way that we assume that Tanakh is ordered nowadays. Chazal tell, us the, Chazal tell us that from a chronological standpoint, from a historical standpoint, so it should be Yeshaya, Isaiah, and then it should be Yermia, Jeremiah, then it should be Yechezkel, Ezekiel, and so on and so forth. However, according to Chazal, right after Sefer Melachim, we should commence the reading of Sefer Jeremiah, of the book of Yermia. And the notion that they say, the reason is, is because of thematic placement rather than a historical placement. The thematic placement goes like this. The end of Sefer Melachim, Chazal tell us, is Kula Churbina. It is all destruction. It is all the demise of Malchut Beit David and the book of Jeremiah is seen as kule churbana, as all destruction as well. In fact, you know, let me just show you. We'll read it inside. It's worth reading inside instead of me uh, just uh, saying it out to everybody. So let's take a look at my footnote over here. It says, So Sidran shel neviim The order of the prophets, the order of Nach, is, the, is Yehoshua, then Judges, then Shmuel, Aleph and Bet, the Melachim, Aleph and Bet, Yermiah, Yechezkel, then Isaiah. Isaiah, from a historical standpoint, should be before Yermiah, right by the, uh, at least by the end of Sefer Melachim. So why is it that Chazal tell us that it should be written like this? And why is it Chazal tell us that it should be written uh, ahistorically, out of chronological order? Samichte, the Gemara asked the question, Yeshaya Kadim Yermiah, Yechezkel. Isaiah came before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Shouldn't Yeshaya be in the beginning of Neviim Achronim? The Gemara answers, because the end of the book of Kings is all about destruction, and the book of Jeremiah is all about destruction, and remember this line, the book of Jeremiah is all destruction, and Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel, begins with destruction, but ends with words of consolation. But Yeshaya, which we just read this past Shabbos, Shabbat Chazon, Yeshaya Kulei Nechemta, the book of Isaiah is all consolation. So therefore, in the opinion of Chazal, Samchinan Churbina Lechurbina V'Nechmata L'Nechmata. So we, we place destruction as referenced by the end of Sefer Melachim, right next to Jeremiah, which is all destruction, and then we put consolation to consolation. However, that's not exactly the way that it's presented. We choose to present the book of Jeremiah in our Tanakh 
in its chronological order, which comes after the book of Isaiah. So much for that. It should also be noted that the last Shabbatot that have been the special Haftarot called the Tlat de Puranuta, the three Haftarot of impending doom, impending strife and difficulty. So the first two begin with readings from Sefer Yermia. And the last one, right before the Shabbat, right before Tisha B'av, is the reading from the book of Isaiah. And this adheres to this theme of Isaiah being the prophet of consolation and Jeremiah being the prophet of destruction. Be that as it may, we're going to see that the, in the actual case is that it's a little bit more complex, uh, if we can say. It's a little bit more complex than the way Chazal presented, uh, although it is true, of course, that if you look at the books in their generality, uh, these, these understandings of Jeremiah being all destruction do indeed hold true. But we're going to see that the picture is actually a, a, a lot more complex than that. So Jeremiah begins with three fascinating psukim that give us the historical context and background as well. Divrei Yirmiyahu ben Chilkiyahu. These are the words of Yirmiyahu, son of Chilkiyahu, min ha-kohanim asher ba'anatot beretz binyamim. So we already know who Yirmiyahu's father is. We already know that he is a kohen. Uh, interestingly enough, Yecheskel is also a Kohen, uh, who eventually is born uh, a little bit later, but is somewhat contemporaneous and overlaps with Yirmiyahu. And we know that he's living in Anatot in Eretz Binyamin, which we already explained was a kind of borderland between the now defunct northern kingdom of Malchut Yisrael and the southern kingdom, which is still extant, Malchus based David. He is right on the borderlands of these two places. Asher hayat dvar Hashem elav b'yemei Yoshiahu ben Amon melech Yehuda he began to prophesy during the 13th year of the reign of Yoshiyahu HaMelech. And then it continues and says, We have here a succinct presentation in these three psukim, a succinct presentation of the, pro- of the prophetic career and the times in which Yirmiyahu prophesy, which is from the begin from the thirteenth year of the reign of Yoshiyahu until the twelfth year of the reign of Melech Tzidkiyahu, uh, and uh, until the exile and eventual destruction of the Jewish people. Yirmiyahu, to be sure, continues to prophesy after the destruction of the temple, as we saw uh, a little bit, having to do with the murder, the assassination of the governor installed by Nebuchadnezzar, Gedalia ben Achikam. Uh, but that's going to come much, much later. An interesting point is that this is unique in Tanakh. Uh, Rav Sabato, this essay that I was uh, reading over the weekend, Rav Sabato points out to us that there are indeed other prophets, other Sifrei Tanakh that open up with maybe one pasuk that looks like this, the words of Yeshayahu ben Amotz. And that's basically it. We saw the very first verses in Sefer Yeshaya this past week because the Haftorah from Chazon is taken from the first 27 psukim of Sefer Yeshaya. But we don't find three psukim. And this is a lot. We don't find three psukim dedicated to giving us the historical background and context to the words of, uh, to the, words of the prophet. And it's, it, it's, it's worth questioning and worth asking why we would spend this time in explaining this, which doesn't happen in other works of Tanakh. Why give all this preamble? Why give all this introduction? I would maybe say that a, a key to opening up this question, which I don't really have the answer for, has to do with the fact that it's called Divrei Yirmiyahu. These are the words of Yirmiyahu. Whereas Yeshaya, for example, starts off with Chazon Yeshayahu, the vision of Yeshayahu. These are the words of Yirmiyahu, which does lend itself to the fact that the book of Yirmiyahu contains 
contains Yirmiyahu's interpretation of events that are happening to him that aren't necessarily uh, prophetic inspiration or prophetic revelation. The whole book is prophetically inspired, but not all of it are, are clear prophecies uh, as, as stated by something Chazon Yishayahu. These are the words of Yirmiyahu. We're encountering Yirmiyahu, the figure Jeremiah is encountered as a man in full. And that's what we're going to see throughout his career, which is already being presaged in these first psukim. So now the prophecy begins. And this is the initiation, what we call the Hakdasha of Yirmiyahu. This is the very first prophecy that he receives. And the very first prophecy that he receives is a call to action, is a call from God telling him what his mission in life is going to be, what his plan in life is going to be. You know, I'm, I'm fond of, um, I, I wrote and, I, and I'm fond of always talking about the fateful meeting between Rav Kook and the Nazir of David Cohen. Rav David Cohen uh, writes in his diary, and I keep on going back to this, the second time I've mentioned him in the Shirim. Uh, the last time we mentioned him was when we talked about when he went out for a trek in the mountains and in the deserts around Anatot, where Yirmiyahu prophesied and, uh, and was born and lived. But we find that the Nazir writes about the moment he met Rav Kook as a rega machria bechayai, that it was a decisive moment in his life. How many of us? can point to a moment in our lives and, and gesture to it and say that was a decisive moment. We can point, certainly, if we have enough uh, self-knowledge, if we are introspective enough, we can point to moments in our lives where we say that had I taken the other path, things would have been quite different. But this is the moment gestured to by the Prophet as being the rega hamachriya b'chayav, the decisive moment in his entire life. And he's called in a very unique way to prophecy, one that is also uh, quite unique, sui generis, really. He says, God says, before you were even formed, before you were, when you were just a thought, when you were, when you were being formed in the womb, and even before that, before you were just a soul coming down to earth, I knew you, and I knew who you were, and I knew what your mission was going to be. And you were anointed, you were sanctified, you were set aside for this mission already before you were born. God says, I have given you as a Navi, as a prophet for all the nations. And indeed, we're going to see, and again, we refer back to this geopolitical reality that we were talking about before, of the fact that Yirmiyahu Hanavi is acting on a very large stage, a world historical stage, if you were, of three great powers with the Jewish people and Eretz Yisrael, specifically the land of Judah, being caught in the middle of these three, power, these three powers. So we're going to find that the prophecies of Jeremiah are really being spoken to the entire ancient Near East, to all the nations and not just the Jewish people. And God says, for this very mission, I've appointed you already. We have a concept in Halacha and in the Torah, which talks about other figures who are sanctified from birth. The, and, and you'll forgive me if I keep on going back to the Nazir theme, uh, but, but there is a concept of a Nazir being sanctified, Meirechem. A Nazir Meirechem is somebody where the parents say that this man or woman um, can, can be a Nazir Meirechem, that they are sanctified from the very birth. Believe it or not, just to go back for a second to the Nazir, uh, to Rav David Cohen, his son, Rav Shayashev Kohen, uh, who was the chief rabbi of Haifa and a Talmud Chacham in his own right, and very much responsible for the dissemination and publication of his father's writings. So we find that, uh, that he too, he and his wife, uh, decided that their son, Shayashev, was going to be designated as a, Navi, as a Nazir Mirechem 
already from his birth. And he says, it's possible, uh, he writes about uh, his son's impending birth, he says, it's possible that my son is the first Nazir Mirechem, the first Nazir from birth since the destructions of the temple. And we have the same concept over here with Yirmiyahu, with Jeremiah, who's designated by God and saying, this mission was already your mission from before you were born. So it's very heavy. Navi Lagoyim Nesatichi is being given as a prophet to all the nations as well. I'm sorry I keep on... Uh, Interrupting for a second, just allowing more people in from the waiting room. I apologize. Uh, okay. Um, I have to keep the security on on Zooms, unfortunately. So, the Omar and, and Yirmiya says, I responded to God. Aha, Adoni Hashem, Hine lo yadati daber. And he does a move that many prophets and most significantly Moshe Rabbeinu is famous for where he declaims the prophecy. He says, I'd rather not do this. And we see this with other prophets as well, prophets who run away from the words of God. We're going to read on Yom Kippur. We're going to read of the Navi, uh, of Yonah Hanavi who runs away from the word of God. So Jeremiah doesn't want this. He says, I don't know how to speak. I don't know how to be a prophet. I don't know how to say these words to the Jewish people or to the nations. I don't know how to do this. Ki na'aranochi. I am but a young man. Now, uh, the, um, the commentators point out that, that Jeremiah is already a grown man at this time. Uh, he's already a Kohen. He's working on a tote. He's seen what's going on. And, um, and he's already saying, This is a, a term for anava, but there's an interesting comment by Rashi over here that I want to read with you, which, which very consciously juxtaposes Yermia with Moshe Rabbeinu, and also very much, we, re- we began reading from Sefer Dvarim this week, also very much coincides with our understanding of Sefer Dvarim and what we're reading right now. So it's fortuitous. Rashi says, Yermia already knows, right? There's, God's not telling me to go to the Jewish people to tell them everything's fine. God's not telling me to go to the Jewish people to tell them like, hey, all this idolatry in your land, that's all right. And all of this, the moral degradation in your land, that's okay. He knows already what his mission is going to be. He intuits what his mission is going to be, which is going to reprove the Jewish people and to be uh, a counterbalance, a very vocal counterbalance to the status quo and to the way people are comfortably thinking about their lives in Eretz Yehuda. Rashi says, He's telling God, I am not fit to give tochacha. I'm not fit to reprove my brethren. I'm not fit to be the one who tells them how to act properly. And he says, he continues in Rashi's, uh, in Rashi's reconstruction of the conversation, of the, of, of the response that Yermia has to God. Rashi says, Moshe Rabbeinu, well, when he gave his great speech to the Jewish people and, and, and gave them words of Musar, that was close to his death. We begin that speech. We began that speech this past Shabbos in, in Parshas Devarim. And Moshe Rabbeinu had already established himself. It's not like the people always listened to Moshe, but his bona fides as a, as a leader sent by God have already been well established. He's done many miracles in front of them. He took them out of Mitzrayim. He tore, the de- he, he tore open the sea. He brought down manna from heaven. He gave them the quail from Shamayim. He gave them the Torah, and the well. Jeremiah responds to God at the beginning of my mission. Right? Give me something else to do at least. Maybe I'll be a prophet, but not to reprove them. 
Not to give them these very difficult words of Musr to tell them that everything that they're doing are wrong and that there's impending doom and that everything that they know is going to be destroyed and that they're going to be exiled for their actions. You're telling me to do this at the very beginning of my mission? How could I do this? I don't have the ability to do this, says Yirmiyahu. And he, and he explicitly, at least according to Rashi, invokes Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe's role in being mochiach and giving musr and reproof to the Jewish people. And Yirmiyahu says, Ki anochi, I'm unable to do that. I can't do that. Says, Ve'omer aha, Adoni Hashem, hine daber. I don't know how to speak. God continues and Yirmiyahu tells us, Ve'yomer Hashem elai. And God said to me, Al Do not say that you're a youth. Do not say that you're inadequate. Do not say that you're able to do this. God anticipates Yirmiyahu's uh, response and his demoral. And God immediately tells Yirmiyahu not to be afraid that God is going to be together with him. And God is saying that he's going to be having a very difficult mission. And this difficult mission is already made explicit at the very beginning, at this rega hamachriya, this decisive moment where Yirmiyah's mission as a prophet is assumed. At this decisive moment, God is also telling him, is acknowledging that the road ahead is very, very difficult and fraught with danger from all sides for what Yirmiyahu is going to say to people. And nevertheless, God says it's not his mission to shirk. It's not his mission to, uh, it's not his mission to, to, to throw off. He has to do this. Ki al Everywhere I send you, you should go. Vet And everything I say to you, you should speak. Now, I, I want to pause for a second and, and, and point out something else. We find in the Torah uh, with Moshe Rabbeinu, who I think is a good foil for our discussion of Yirmiyahu and the initiation of his prophecy, we find uh, in this week's parsha as well, we find that Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to Jewish people, Hashem, like everything that God commanded Moshe to say. So I was reading from the Radamska Rebbe, the Teferish Shlomo, right over here, the Tefer Shlomo from this Sefer. So the Tefer Shlomo points out, I'm not going to spend too much time because our time is limited. Tefer Shlomo says, what's, this, what's the deal with saying, right? as if Moshe were to say things to the Jewish people that God didn't command? Or as if God commanded Moshe to say something and Moshe is not going to say it? So rather he says to us that this is giving us instruction about the quality of prophecy. We've spoken many times before about the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is seen as qualitatively different than the prophecy of all others. We're told that that God spoke to Moshe mouth to mouth, that Moshe Rabbeinu is merely a conduit, that Moshe Rabbeinu is not merely, but he is simply, in the most genius way, Moshe Rabbeinu is simply a conduit, it's sinor. Moshe Rabbeinu is a way for which God's word to be transmitted to us here on earth. The prophet in his greatest, in, in, in the highest level of prophecy, the prophet is simply repeating exactly what God says to him. Lo b'mare, lo b'chidos, that God didn't speak to Moshe in... In, in any sort of visions, that God didn't speak to Moshe in any sort of chidot, in, in metaphor or simile or parable or mashal. It was direct communication from God to Moshe. And what the Radomsker says is that the quality of Moshe's nevuah, and this is something that the Radomsker is not alone in saying. Uh, the Ramchal discusses this in Derech Hashem in the fourth chapter to tell us that the quality of Moshe's nevuah meant that there was almost nothing Kimat nothing of Moshe Rabbeinu, the man in the prophecy that he gives over. And that's sort of what God is telling to Yirmiyahu. There's so many things to get worked up on. 
When you're talking, when you're reproving a king, when you're telling an entire society that what they're doing is wrong, when you're telling an entire society that their downfall is, is, is imminent, it's very easy, I think, for a person to put themselves on the side and say, well, that's not me. And there's a superiority. There's a, a, sense, of, uh, a sense of being above everybody else. And, and that could easily come into the mind of a person, a gadfly, a person who's telling a society, reproving them for their ways. Jeremiah could easily have fallen into this trap. He could have easily uh, fallen into a kind of self-righteousness or, or moral indignation. We don't find that at all in his prophecies. He's simply giving over that which God tells him, especially in such a fraught political and, geo- and, and, uh, and world context at the time, turbulent times. Yirmiyahu is trying as much as possible to be a conduit to Dvar Hashem, Kichol Asher Tzivisicha. The Ramchal says that this Aspaklari Hama'ira, the clear, the clear uh, window through which Moshe saw God, the clear prism through which Moshe saw God is the description of Moshe himself. That Moshe Rabbeinu was a clear, a clear vessel. God's word went through him and came out, and with Yirmiyahu, it's close to that as well. He is a clear vessel for God's understanding of the world events that are happening around the ancient Near East and that are going to happen to the Jewish people. I think it's an important point uh, to say over here, and that's the language uh, that is commanded over here. Anywhere I send you, you should go. You're going to say everything that I tell you, meaning what God is, is this is actually a comfort, I think. And, uh, and this is original. This might be wrong. Uh, if I'm quoting from somebody else, I'll say it uh, just for all of our other readings. If I'm quoting from somebody else, I'll be sure as much as possible to quote them and to try and bring Geula to the world. The Gemara Megillah tells us, so that's what I'm going to try and do. And I'm definitely not going to give off other people's pirushim or interpretations as my own, not if I could handle it. So this is my own interpretation that God's doubling of the language, everywhere I send you, you should go. And everything I command you, you should say, is actually a comfort to Yermia. Because if God is telling him, you're going to have to come up with your own understanding of these mashalim, of these parables, of these uh, rather opaque prophecies, so you might feel that you, there's going to be pitfalls and you might be putting in too much of yourself and you're not going to be protected. But if you're only saying what God wants, you're only going where God sends you, so then there's a degree of kasher avaditi avaditi. Whatever I need to do and say, I've given up myself. And that's basically what's happening now is the severing of Yirmiyahu from all worldly considerations and only being muktash to Dvar Hashem, to the word of God. Now, I... If you're thinking, Rabbi Rosenfeld, you must not know the next few psukim, you'd be correct. I mean, I do know the next few psukim, but you'd be correct in saying that there's a contradiction because what we're about to see right after this is that God does just that with Yirmiyahu. He's, his very first vision, his very first vision is indeed a mashal, is indeed a metaphor and a parable that he has to interpret. But I think that that actually underscores the point because by Yirmiyahu interpreting that well, he shows that right now he's going to just from here on out say whatever God puts in his mouth. So I think it's actually uh, coherent with the rest of these verses as well. Altira mipnehem. God says, do not be afraid of them. Now it's important to mention over here and the, the Tanakh dat mikra tells us that mipnehem from who? Yirmiyahu was not, is not told who's going to be, who he needs to be afraid of. Yirmiyahu is not told who his antagonists or his opposition is going to be. Right? Who, who should he be afraid of? Don't be afraid of them. I'll be with you to save you. So it must be that Yirmiyahu is already so well attuned to what's going on, so well attuned to the way that the kings of 
of of Malchi Yehuda, except for Yoshiao Melech, are going to accept his words. He's going. He's well aware of the way the society is so entrenched in its ways that whatever is going to happen now is going to be in opposition to them, and uh, is going to lead to threats to his person, to his livelihood, and even his life. All things that happen from this point out. God says, don't be afraid of them. And Yirmiyahu already knows exactly who God is referring to. Ki itcha I am with you to save you, says God. Neum Hashem. Vayishlach Hashem et yado, vayigalpi. And Yirmiyahu says, in the translation over here, it, from the JPS is, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, vayomer Hashem elai, I have now put my words in your mouth. Now, I think it's worth uh, pointing out that this is an idea that, uh, that many of us might be familiar with. Um, I'll stop share for a second just so I can uh, go back to all of you. We, we have a, a very well-known Gemara in Masechet Nida, which describes to us the process of Torah learning that a child does in the womb. And I wonder... I wonder, I've never seen this explicitly connected to the description of Yirmiyahu being a prophet that is being muktash mirechem, that is being sanctified and designated while in utero, before even the soul comes down to this world, and the Gemara Nida. The Gemara Nida, which I'll just say quickly, uh, is that, uh, you know, that while the child, while the... uh, while the, the fetus is in the womb of the mother, so a malach holds a candle over its head and teaches this, uh, teaches this baby, kol ha-Torah kula, teaches the baby all of the Torah. And kevan shabalav olam, and before the baby is born and emerges into this world, ba malach v'sotra piv. The malach comes and taps the baby on its, uh, on its mouth. So some people say that that's, I, I forgot the name, there's actually a name for the groove that we have, uh, that we have inside. And... Um, I could go on such a tangent now, but our time is short, so I'm not going to go. The, the quick tangent is that if... Uh, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay, but um, you have to... I, I need people to keep me on the straight and narrow uh, to focus on your meow and not other things. But, but the, there's so many beautiful perushim, uh, homiletical interpretations of what exactly is going on. Why would a malach cause the baby to forget all their learning? Um, that all learning, all learning of Torah is in actuality an act of retrieval rather than an act of learning the first time. We're not, we're not going down that road. I'm not going to do that. We'll stay on Yirmiyahu. But I wonder if there's a connection between the description, the unique description of Yirmiyahu being a Navi, a prophet that's sanctified even from before birth, and the fact that his mission begins when God gives him this prophecy and, and, and taps him on the mouth. Now that is indeed the pshat that God taps him on the mouth. Uh, that is not how... Uh, that is not how all the Meforshim understand what's going on over here. Rav Yosef Kara, who was a uh, French uh, Torah commentator that lived in the 11th and 12th century, tells us, Again, a parallel with Moshe Rabbeinu. This was said to Moshe, So we see an almost direct parallel between Jeremiah and Moshe, that this language of putting words in his mouth and of, and of putting his hand on his mouth is actually, uh, is actually a, a way of describing the fact that, that what he's going to say from here on out is really just going to be a mouth, an expression of, of, what, God's, uh, of what God's words and what God's desires are. We see this with Aaron Akoin also, when Moshe himself demurs and says, you know, I can't you know, the people aren't going to listen to me. Paro's not going to listen to me. So Hashem eventually uh, accedes to some of Moshe's quest and say that Aaron, your brother, is going to be your pet. He's going to be your mouth. 
that Moshe indeed is a kvad pev, a kvad lashon. So this placing words on his mouth is again, I believe, a marker and a signifier of the function of the Navi as a conduit. It's not putting anything of their own selves into what they're saying in the name of God, but really being only a conduit to the word of God. And, uh, and I brought over here the Gemara and the footnotes as well. If people have the source sheets, so you'll be able to, uh, to study that on your own. So I think that there is a, an interesting connection between both of them. So God says, I've appointed you on this day, on the nations and on the smaller principalities and the smaller tribes amongst them. And he gives us four languages of destruction over here. You've heard of four languages of Geula, four languages of redemption. So Jeremiah gives us four languages of destruction. Lintosh, to knock away. Lintots, to break up, right? We find in, uh, when we talk about Nig'e Batim, Tzarat, of houses. So the house has to be, has to undergo Nititza. Or when it talks about idolatry, of the demolishing, Lahavid, to destroy, Ulaharos. And to, um, again, to destroy. If you, uh, I don't have a, th- a thesaurus in front of me. I apologize. And then we have two words of rebuilding, livnot v'lintoa. And then to rebuild and to plant. Two things that we're going to see Yirmiyahu doing. Yirmiyahu plants and Yirmiyahu also acquires the rights to land to build, which are symbols of nechama, symbols of rebuilding and consolation. So already here, in a book that is supposedly, ostensibly, kula churbina, and it starts. We've got four languages of destruction. This is rough stuff. And the fact that we know that there are going to be major antagonists to the prophet and what he's going to say because his words are going to be words of destruction and difficult for people to hear. Nevertheless, we do have these two words of Livnot, Vilintoa, to rebuild and to plant alongside the four languages of destruction. Some of the commentators point out, the Radak, for example, tells us that these four languages of destruction are not just referring to the Jewish people, but are referring to all the other nations in the land as well. To be quite sure, we're going to see over the course of Sefer Yirmiyahu the demise, or at least the diminishing of the power of the former regional dominant uh, Mitzrayim. We're going to see uh, the, the fall of Ashur of Assyria, who was greater than everybody and had ruled over Eretz Yisrael, at least the northern kingdom, for about a hundred years. And in the days of Isaiah came extremely close. Uh, only a miracle saved Yerushalayim to destroying Yerushalayim themselves. And we're going to see eventually Bavel is going to down, have its downfall also. It's going to be visited upon Bavel as well as we saw earlier in, the, in, uh, in Sefer Melachim and also in the prophecies of Yirmiya. Even great Bavel, even Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his comeuppance as well. And Livnot Vilintoa, the rebuilding is going to be us. The rebuilding is going to be the Jewish people, is going to be Malchut Beit David. That is going to be rebuilt. Lintoa over here, I believe, and this is again me, I'm not going to do that every time. I know how annoying that probably is. But, uh, but I, I think the linto over here, if we're understanding the binyan of Vesamikdash and the Netiyah, that might be referring to Etzemach David Avdecha, that the, the, the planting of the sprout of David HaMelech that will, that, uh, that will signify the eventual complete rebuilding, complete rectification of the events that happened in Sefer Yermia. So we... We're almost running out of time, and I want to I look at the... So I said that Yermia is really going to be trying as much as possible to giving, only, on, to giving over only Dvar Hashem without metaphors, without uh, mincing words, and without uh, Mara and Chida, illusions or, 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 or puzzles. But his very first vision that he gets from God, a test, if you will, is two such things. Vahi Dvar Hashem Ma'ataro e Yermiyahu. 
God said to me, what do you see, Yirmiyahu? And we're talking about a prophetic vision right now. Va'omar, and Yirmiyahu says, I responded, Makel shaked ani I see an almond branch. That's what I see. So just for our viewing pleasure, uh, this is Vincent van Gogh's almond blossom. Um, this is probably the most beautiful image of an almond branch that, that I could find. Uh, interestingly enough, this is one of the last paintings um, that uh, van Gogh uh, painted before he killed himself in 1890, but, uh, but it's, this is a detail of it, just stunning. So there you have an almond branch. So Jeremiah says, Makel I see an almond branch. You saw good. Now, many of the commentators ask, what exactly is the test over here? That Yermiao is able to identify a shrub or is able to identify uh, some plant life, some flora that is endemic to his area? That's easy. So they point out is that what Yermiao is seeing is either one of two things that God is commending him for seeing. The first is that maybe it's a branch before it has blossomed. And if that's true, it would be very difficult sometimes to discern, unless you're a botanist, difficult to discern exactly what you're seeing. And, and, and the notion is that he's seeing not just the content, but the intent of what God is showing him. And the second possibility is that Yermiao, as we're about to see, understands the symbolism of the Makel Shaked, the symbolism of the almond branch as well. You don't have time to really uh, drive into it, but the almond branch does come up elsewhere in Nuvuah and prophecy and in the Torah. Most prominently, I think, is the link to Aaron Kohen, where an almond branch is used to symbolize, well, I'll just show you over here, in the merit of Korach. So the Pasuk tells us, and it's a symbol of Bechira. It's not just a symbol of, as we'll see, the fast unfolding and blossoming of the prophecies that they're going to happen quite quick but that we're seeing also a symbol for the Bechira, a symbol for the choosing of Jeremiah as a prophet. That when Aaron has to signal to Korach and his rabble that he is indeed chosen for this position and not them, the symbol of that is a blossoming almond branch. So that is, uh, that is an example of I think uh, part of the symbolism here, but the Radak tells us the following, God showed Jeremiah an almond branch. It's actually, even though it's quite beautiful, it's a sign of the strife and the doom that is soon coming for Israel. And that it's not going to tarry, it's going to happen very quickly. And Dat um, Mikra told me that Dat um, Mikra told me that indeed the almond branch is one of the earliest blossoming uh, flora in Eretz Israel, and really anywhere that they're planted, and that it already uh, blossoms far earlier than many other trees, many other branches. It's a sign of all these things, but specifically how fast it's going to happen. And also the word shokade, shin kuftalit, uh, indicates a kind of intensity, a kind of focus, right? Uh, we talk, uh, the title of the biography of Rav Yashiv, the great Lithuanian Gadol Hador, uh, the title of, of the big biography was called Hashaktan. Shakdanas and Limud is, is steiging, is, is, is diligence, is God is saying that this is going to be a single focus. And this is all symbolized by the almond branch as well. Vayomer Hashem Eli, hitav you've seen well, Jeremiah. Ki shokedani advarai la asoto. I am going to stick with my words to do them. 
And God said, second vision to Jeremiah to see. Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, He says, I see, and I'm going to put in parentheses, there are a few interpretations of what this is. There is some degree of machloket uh, about what a sir nafuach is. We're going to use the parish of Rashi that a sir nafuach is jars just like these that are contemporaneous, actually. Uh, these are in the Israel Museum. And the jar is going to be seething. Nafuach, there's a seething. In the Targum Shivim, it says in the Septuagint, the translation over here is that it's a seething, the burning of the shrubs underneath it, that he sees this pot bubbling over, and the pot is roshav, panav, meaning the, the spout of the pot is facing down from the north, from the kingdoms of the north, namely Bavel and Ashur, well, first Ashur and then Bavel, and it is pointing downwards, telling us, me, telling us, Vayom Rashem Eli, mitzafon tifatah that the bad, that the doom is going to come from the north and all the inhabitants of the land. Uh, I said that there is some machloket about what a sir nafuach is. I'll just read you uh, from Rabbi Benny Lau's book over here. Rabbi Benny Lau follows, um, he follows uh, an academic approach which says that, and he loves this, he loves to, uh, what I'm noticing, with all due respect, what I'm noticing is that there's a, a, a strong fondness in this book, uh, maybe a favoring of... Um, of perushim and pshatim, of interpretations and understandings that go against what the ordinary accepted was. The, the thrill of telling people that the ordinary way of looking at something is wrong. Um, but he says over here that Jeremiah sees a pile of thorny, burnet shrubs, sarcopitorium spinosum, or syracote sanit in modern Hebrew, a native Mediterranean shrub burned for cooking and purposes. He says over here that this is, uh, this is not the more common explanation of a seething pot. So whether you want to understand Sir Nafuach as a tumbleweed, or you want to understand it as I do, as the Dat Mikra referring to a pot that's boiling over and frothing at the top, which I think is a far more, uh, a far more apt metaphor, if you ask me, whatever it is that it's a symbol of the wick of the evil that is about to befall the Jewish people coming from the north. Now, I'm going to leave us with a question because we're hitting up on our time. We saw from Chazal that they, they wanted to shift this book out of its historical context because of the fact that it's Kula Chorbana, because it's all destruction. And indeed, we're left at the very initiation of Jeremiah at this Rega Machria as being a prophet of destruction. So my question for you is as follows. Why is it, why is it that we are going to find throughout this book, we're also going to find interspersed amongst, to be sure, many prophecies of doom that we find notes of hope that are struck. And what does that mean for these notes of hope and consolation that Jeremiah says? How do we interpret that through the general context of the Sefer being Kula Chorbana? And already at the very first vision of Jeremiah, we are told that not only is he going to be a prophet of these four Lishonot, these four languages, Lintots, La'abed, La'aros, Ve, I skipped one. I shouldn't read any Psukim Baal Peh. Lintosh velintots la bidolaros that these four prophecies, these four words of destruction come along with livnot velintoa. That is a very interesting way of understanding that all prophets have 
not just one signo, not just one message that they give over, it's rather a complex one. And I think that part of our work in studying Sefer Yirmiya and looking through these individual prophecies that we're going to focus on is locating the hope within it. I had a lot more uh, that I had wanted to do tonight, but we're going to 